I'd like to open in prayer. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your love. We're grateful for your written word. We ask that as we study your written word, we'll get to know the living word, Jesus. We know that he's the word that was in the beginning with God, and he's the word that in the beginning was God and is God today, and that he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. We know that. And we ask as we study your written word that we would look past the page and see your face. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Some time ago, Judy Lohrer made the comment, and I don't know whether to make it a, uh, an accolade or an accusation, but she says, every single time he's teaching us about discipleship. I thought, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do, right? <laughs> oh. And yeah, that is what I'm supposed to do. So we're going to talk about stewardship and ministry today with the intent of learning about faithfulness and focus. In, uh, let's read the first seven verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'm reading from the King James. You can <clears throat> read from whatever Bible you are comfortable with. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. <clears throat> but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. <clears throat> Therefore, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. <clears throat> and these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye, plural you, might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. <clears throat> for who makes thee, this is singular you, who makes thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, then why dost thou then glory, as if thou hadst not received it? <clears throat> Paul's beginning chapter 4 by asking the Corinthian believers to consider himself and the other teachers, and he's named them in chapter 1. He says, you guys are arguing over who's better. Is it Paul? Is it Peter? Is it Apollos? Well, I, I studied under Jesus. See, they were dividing over that. They were causing division over who their favorite teacher was, and he told them to knock it off. So Jesus is not divided. Peter wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul and so forth. Says there's one body, and we're not to be breaking it up like that. And this comes up over and over through the Corinthian letters. <clears throat> but in these first four chapters, he keeps going back to that initial introduction, saying that Paul and Apollos have had similar but different ministries, and they are working together. Earlier he says, I planted and Apollos watered. God gave the increase. Come on, there's not a fight going on here. <clears throat> And he begins by asking them to consider himself and the other teachers as simply the servants of Christ. Don't think of it as something higher than that. We're just servants. 
This, this word minister, as a noun, the word minister means a servant. In fact, as a verb, the, the infinitive verb to minister is, means to serve. <clears throat> and we think it's some kind of exalted thing. You know, he's a minister. It just means servant. That's all it means. And we're taking it and turned it into something else. And he's telling them, knock it off. It's not something else. It just means I'm a servant. We're servants of Christ. <clears throat> and he goes on to say that they're also to be considered as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, we've talked quite a bit recently, over the last few months anyway, about this concept of ministry and service. And, and we've seen that the word minister in every case turns out to mean a servant. And I've known people that said they didn't like menial service. Well, the word menial comes from the same root as minister. So if you don't want menial work, then you don't want to be a minister of Christ, a servant. <clears throat> There's things that we're uncomfortable with. Well, I'm not a servant. Not that you better be. That's what Jesus said. He said that he himself was a servant. See, we've scarcely touched on the concept of stewardship, though. A steward is somebody that's either been given responsibility, usually somebody who's been given responsibility and limited authority over some particular matter, over maybe a personnel issue, or a shop steward, uh, maybe over uh, uh, an investment, maybe a piece of property, <clears throat> and they're responsible for the upkeep of that. And they may have virtually no honor as a result of that stewardship, or they may be, you know, given some kind of political prominence. You know, he's he's the keeper of the keys. And in England, there was offices. There was just that. There's, I believe, it's still there, but it's completely traditional now. The keeper of the keys at the Tower of London, uh, and the the they go through this ceremony every night where the warden shows up and the uh, or maybe it's the other way around maybe the guy guarding is the warden I forget what but they say who's there and he says it's the keys whose keys Queen Anne's keys pass you know why well because that ministry has taken on an, an air of importance and political prominence and we have ministers of education and ministers of this and that in our governments it still just means servant, but they've given some kind of stewardship, usually, to someone like that. <clears throat> and the only thing that all stewardship positions have in common is that the steward has to be faithful to that stewardship. They have to be actually fulfilling the task that they were given to do. <clears throat> it says it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And by the way, the word man there isn't in the original uh, the Greek says the word tis, T-I-S, and it can be translated who or one. And some of the newer translations, that's what it says. It requires that one be found faithful. And that's exactly what it means. Uh, <clears throat> it isn't just about men, is my point. So what is faithfulness? Well, in some contexts, faithful just means you're a believer. And when I read, you know, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, just means the, all the believers. To, to, that's all it means in that context. Well, this is not one of those contexts. 
in this context, the idea of faithfulness means reliability. It means dependability. It means you stay focused on that task and see to it that that gets done. <clears throat> it's especially important where living things are involved. When Anne's left me in charge of taking care of her plants, that's really risky because I don't see the plants the way she does. I see them as like part of the furniture. They're just there. And it doesn't dawn on me, yeah, but that particular thing, if you don't put some water in it now and then, it's going to die. And you'll let down this responsibility that Anne's left you for and left you to do and asked you to do. So a plant, you got a little bit of leeway. leeway. You, some of them have to be watered real, real frequently. Some of them, you can let them go a while. They'll, they'll be all right. Uh, if they don't get sunlight, they're going to die. So living things, it becomes more and more an issue. What about if it's animate living things? Like if somebody's asked you to take care of their pets while they're gone on vacation. My neighbors asked me to, they gave me a key and told me to come over and feed their dog for like two days in a row while they were gone. And of course the dog would bark at me. And, but once she realized I was there to feed her, she was fine. And when they got home, it was all over. I wasn't responsible anymore. But see, all living things are dependent upon something. Some of them, you know, the trees in the forest are just dependent on God. We don't go out there and water them. He does. But if you've got an animal, a pet, a livestock, they are dependent on you. Unless you can turn them out for free grazing and just go find them now and then. They're, they're dependent on you. And if you're not faithful to that stewardship, then it's going to cost it's going to cost them their life, maybe. <clears throat> you see, if it was a pet that needed to be taken care of, then it's a heavier responsibility in that you're that someone. You're the, the person that's been given the stewardship of taking care of them. And how would you feel if you left your livestock or your pets or something else to someone else because they agreed to take care of them for a period of time and you come home and find out that they've been severely neglected or maybe abused in some way how would you feel? How would you feel toward that person that you trusted to take care of your I don't know, your horse, your chickens, your cat, your dog, your goldfish, whatever it is and how would you feel about yourself for having blindly trusted this person that you thought would be trustworthy and they were not and now your pet is maybe permanently injured or dead or something. <clears throat> okay, let's go up one more step. What if it was your kids involved? That you trusted somebody to take care of your children and you come back and find out they've been neglected, they've been abused. You, you, as the children finally kind of open up and tell you how things went and you find out, oh, that was horrible. I am so sorry that I left you with that person. Okay becomes more and more serious the closer this matter is to your own heart. There's been government agencies that have proven unfaithful in their care for at-risk humans, whether it's the elderly or the very young or people that are disabled in some way. And when the public has found out that they have neglected or abused that stewardship, you know, we're all up in arms. We want them held accountable. They did wrong, and that child is permanently damaged because you put them into that place where there, somebody abused them. <clears throat> you didn't take care of them. You didn't do your job right. Okay. We want them held accountable. Well, guess what? God holds stewards accountable too. 
Let's think about this. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit them, yourself unto them, as unto those who must give account. It says, For they watch for your souls. This is talking about church leadership. It's not civil government. Civil government isn't watching for my soul. I can't, they can't believe I've got one. Church leadership, they better be concerned for your soul. That's what it's about. <clears throat> he says, They watch for your souls as they that must give account. They're going to have to give account to God for what happened on their shift, on their watch, so to speak. <clears throat> he says, you submit yourself to them, for they watch for your souls as they, as they that must give account, that they may do it, what? Give account, with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. In a church assembly where people rebel against God's word, and the whole church just goes to pieces, well, those shepherds aren't looking forward to standing before God and trying to explain what happened. They're trying, they, they feel like, what did I do wrong? How did I, how did I fail here? What's going on? Maybe they didn't do anything wrong. Jeremiah was completely faithful to the assignment given to him, and the people that he was assigned to minister to consistently rebelled against God's word. And he wept for them all the time. He's called the weeping prophet because of his grief for how God's people were rebelling against God's word. <clears throat> But in his case, we know from reading that he was completely faithful. And, you know, I can't say that for myself for sure. How do I know I didn't drop the ball someplace? How do I know I didn't respond correctly to somebody's need or, or see something developing that I should have seen? So I'm not as confident about my own life as I am Jeremiah's. Jeremiah's, God laid it out for me. We know what happened. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 34, I'm not going to turn there right now. I would suggest you go read it. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10 specifically, because God is talking to the shepherds of Israel at that point. And he gives seven tasks that collectively are the task of the shepherd. And those tasks are still the same today. How do I know? Well, because sheep haven't changed. Therefore, the job of the shepherd hasn't changed. And in the, the list <clears throat> includes the number one, and this is the underpinning of the whole pile, is feed the flock. Feed the flock. That's, that's, that's the name of the game. <clears throat> but he goes on to say, strengthen the diseased, heal the sick, bind up the broken, bring back those that have been driven away, seek the lost, and protect them from all predators. That's all there in those first 10 verses. Now, yes, right after that, he says, because you didn't do it, I'm taking, taking you off the job. I'm going to be the shepherd over my sheep. And then he speaks to the sheep. You want to read that too. These responsibilities haven't changed. They're still the collective work of the shepherds. And if the shepherds collectively are doing their job in unity, uh, Richard and I worked together in unity for seven years here before he died. Uh, uh, at all the times we've had multiple shepherds here, which is what we're supposed to have all the time, we've worked together in full unity. And as a result, the, the combination of the shepherds working correctly together and ministering God's word and people responding correctly to God's word, the church is flourishing, God's blessing. To the degree that we either don't do the job right or in whatever way we do disregard God's word, whether it's the shepherds doing it or the, the flock, 
to the degree we disregard God's word, we can see God's blessing diminish. That's just a fact. That's the truth. And, sorry, I don't know what I've gotten into, but my skin is really itching to my finger here. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we've been studying through the Old Testament in uh, Wednesday evening Bible studies. First Samuel chapter 2, we see a high priest named Eli. They don't call him the high priest there, but we can see it from the context. That's what he is. And he gets in trouble with God because he, his sons were flat out evil. And he was in a position of authority to where he could have stopped them. He could have stopped them cold. He could have called up you know, the sergeant at arms, so to speak, and said, these two men are becoming totally evil. They're corrupting the, the ministry here. We're going to take them out. He wasn't willing to. He's just talking to him and says, boys, don't do, don't do that kind of stuff. Well, simultaneously, he didn't stop them, and Scripture says he got fat off of their behavior. They were stealing the best of the, of the uh, offerings and not handling it like the sacrifices that were holy. And it says that he got fat off of it, too. He says, you, plural, but it, we find out later he was right in there with them. He was profiting by it. And God judged him. <clears throat> the first result was that the people of Israel began to despise both the tabernacle and the offerings they had been bringing. They think, what's the point? You know, these guys are just going to pull it away from me and do whatever they want with it. We're, we're not allowed to do what we're supposed to do with the offerings. And what's the point? It says that the people abhorred the offerings of God. They couldn't stand it. I don't blame them. Go back and read that. First, second, first, first Samuel chapters 2 and 3, we find out just how evil those young men were. <clears throat> and God told Eli, he sent a prophet, unnamed. They didn't even bother to tell us who the prophet was. They just says this man of God showed up. God told Eli that he, Eli, had honored his evil sons more than he had honored God. Oops. He wasn't obeying God's word. He was not being faithful to the stewardship that had been given to him. He was not focused on the task. He was just kind of wanting to not rock the boat or something. And the result, it cost Eli his own life and the life of both of his sons and a lasting curse on the entire future of his family lineage. You can read that. So yes, the stewards of the mysteries of God, as he says we're supposed to count him and the other leaders, the stewards of the mystery of God are called into accounts by God. They're held accountable individually and as a group for their actions and for the results of their actions. <clears throat> so we need to take it seriously. Now, there's a warning given in James chapter 3, verse 1. He says, <clears throat> uh, says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we, as teachers, that's the word masters again, we shall receive the greater condemnation. I say masters again. That came up in the class before this, that when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he says, are you a master of Israel and you don't know these things? The word master, we used to talk about schoolmasters and dancing masters and you know, uh, any master of anything. They were the ones that would teach you. And he says, don't jump into the job of being a teacher, inadvisedly at least. He says, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. We're going to come into a stricter 
judgment and criticism. <clears throat> Don't just go running over the spot after the spotlight as a teacher. You're also going to receive a more severe judgment. Now, this kind of condemnation could just be from other people. Even the unbelieving world just loves to to try to find something to smear Christian leaders with. Uh, and when a Christian leader falls into crime or some kind of flagrant sin where it becomes public, oh, they just they that's all over the press, it's all over the news. They just love to eat that up. Why? Because they want to reject the God of Israel. And if they can find faults with his servants, they can re reject him along with them. They say, see, they're a bunch of hypocrites. See? So we want to be careful knowing that even the unbelievers are going to more, more critically examine and scrutinize the people that end up being shepherds over the flock of God. <clears throat> Sometimes the world has even set up a trap to to put somebody in a position where they look bad when they didn't do anything. They're innocent, but it doesn't look that way. <clears throat> I know uh, I read that Billy Graham was super careful that way. Wherever he went, he did not enter a room without sending some of his entourage in first to, to check the place out, make sure nobody was hiding in there, was going to jump out and try to put him in some kind of a compromised situation. And he never was alone with any woman except his wife. He would always make sure somebody else was with him because he knew that they were going to look for a chance to, to uh, I don't know what's the word, uh, disparage him and by doing so uh, somehow make God's word not true. It's, it's not true, true that they could do that, but they would make it look that way. So God warns us to expect this stricter accountability, and it makes perfect sense. You see, because he has entrusted his flock to those leaders. If they're guilty of what we call misfeasance, that means doing your job wrong, or nonfeasance, means not doing it at all, either misfeasance or nonfeasance are the responsibilities that he's given, he's going to take action against them. So the stricter accountability comes from him, not just the world. <clears throat> I've known people that wanted to become a pastor. I said, um, how come? They said, well, you know, it's an easy job, it's a clean job, and it pays pretty good. Huh, I don't think that's good motivation. Okay. Any honest servant of God fears failure in this, in this area. We know that we can fail. We know that we can fall. None of us want to face the consequences of having fallen prey to greed or lust or, or pride or any other kind of sin and, and by that leading some assembly astray. We don't want to have to stand before God knowing that we've wrecked things for him. Back in the previous chapter, he says, you, plural, are the singular temple of God, that the whole body of Christ collectively is the habitation of God, as we read over in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3. And he says that that temple is holy, and him that defiles the temple of God, him will God destroy. That's the way it reads in the King James. If any man defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. God will judge those who defile his flock through either bad or careless teaching or turn them aside through bad or careless leadership. If, you're, if you take it lightly, then God's going to take you lightly. That's what God said. We read that back in First uh, Samuel chapter... Actually, I don't remember now. I guess I'll find out before Wednesday, won't I? <clears throat> 
But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, now this is one where you're going to think, wait, wait, wait. In Hebrews 5, 12, it says, by this time you should be teachers. What, what? I thought James said we weren't to jump into being teachers. Not inadvisedly. If you're not ready, if you haven't studied the word, if, 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 you, aren't, if you haven't been going to God's feed bin, the Bible, enough to fill your bucket with sheep food that God gave you, then no, you, you don't jump in and just figure you'll tell stories. Uh, I taught for 20 years over at Cornell, Cornell Estates in Hillsborough, and when I first got there, I was talking with somebody, and they said, yeah, the guy who was here before you, you know, he didn't really talk about God's Word much. I thought, it's a Bible study. What, what did he talk about? He said, oh, he told stories about elk hunting and salmon fishing. Uh, um, okay, that's not okay. If you're going to have a Bible study, you teach from God's Bible. You teach from God's Word. If you're going to feed the flock, you feed from the sheep food. Now, if somebody comes in that's not a believer, that's fine. They're welcome here, and we'll love them, and we'll try to draw them into God's kingdom. But the fact is, I'm not going to change what's on the table. I'm not going to feed something else to the whole flock because somebody's here that's not a sheep, so to speak. No, I'm going to feed sheep food. That's, that's all I got. God does call us to be his ambassadors. He does call us to grow up into responsibility. And in Hebrews 5.12, he told these Hebrew believers, guys, you started off as Jews. You were born again. You should have already known the word enough that you could start maturing right away. And instead, you have backslidden to become babies. You can only drink milk. You can't eat solid food. Look, look at it. It's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. He says, you become such as have need of milk and not solid food. You're babes. They didn't stay babes. They went backwards. They became babes. Take, take a look at it. And he says he wants us to grow. He wants us to get out of that. In fact, in Hebrews chapter, not Hebrews, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says we're to grow up into Christ. We're to grow into his stature. We're to become more and more like him. He calls us to be his ambassadors, and he does call us to grow up into that responsibility. These warnings are not to dissuade us from seeking to serve God with our lives. Rather, they're a solemn warning that it's a serious business. Don't take it lightly. I had a guy who said he could wanted to be a pastor, and he, uh, I said, well, uh, what, how do you feel prepared for that? He says, well, I got the gift of gab, you know. Sorry, that's not what God calls for. In fact, he gives a list of prerequisites in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, if you want to read them. And again, over in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And again, in, uh, let's see, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses, uh, yeah, verses 1 through 4 there. He gives the prerequisites, and none of them have to do with having the gift of gab. Nope. <clears throat> and finally, he says, God is the judge. In verses 3 and 4, Paul makes it clear that the collective opinions or judgment of the Corinthian believers, he says, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. Verse 4, he says, For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. That's not what makes me righteous before God. He says, But in the final analysis, he that judges me is the Lord. <clears throat> so he says it's, it's clear that the collective opinions or judgment of the Corinthian believers is not his primary focus. That's not his primary concern. His supervisor and the final judge of his work is the Lord Jesus. He knows that. He knows he's accountable to God. And Romans 14.4 confirms that. 
it says that we're not to judge another man's servant. If you don't like somebody else's style of service, well, go slow on judging them because unless they are clearly outside of the what God teaches and they're teaching something wrong, then maybe you need to back up and sit down because if they're serving God faithfully, then he's the one that will either approve or disapprove. And he's, in fact, he goes on to say in Romans 14, 4, God is able to make them stand. He stands before his own master, and God is able to make them stand. So they will stand. We don't judge one another over minor differences. <clears throat> on the other hand, in Romans 2, 16, he says that the secrets of the hearts, God will judge according to the gospel. Now, in, in Romans 2, he's talking about salvation, and he says that the, you know, where our heart really is, we judged according to the gospel. Later on in 1 Corinthians 3, we found out that our work in terms of reward and service will be judged according to what did you, what did you do with Jesus? The gospel is what did you do with Jesus? Did you reject him? Did you receive him? But when it gets down to reward is what did you do along with him? You were supposed to be serving with him. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, I think it is. Let's see. I got that right? Uh, yeah, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, it says we are laborers together with God. And we saw that in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Join up with me in my yoke. It's a double harness he's talking about. He wants us to pull with him. And finally, in John 15, 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's just the honest truth. That if he isn't doing it through you, it's not going to have any eternal value. So in 1 Corinthians 3, we saw the final judgment of our works, not our sins, our works, whether it has eternal value or not, as being declared by fire. It, it, he says, I'm going to touch a match to it. If it burns up, it didn't have eternal value. It looked good, but it didn't have eternal value. He says, if it remains, if the fire doesn't touch it, then you got a reward. Okay, But that's not about salvation. That's about service and about rewards. It all, it all, both of them come down to being judged by God's word. <clears throat> see, I can't see anybody else's heart, so I can't judge them or their actions unless their actions are clearly what God says is flagrant sin. If it's rebellion against God's word, I can say, okay, this is, this is not okay. This is not right. <clears throat> but in terms of where their heart is, all I can do as a shepherd is to keep declaring all the general commands that are for all believers, and I can't see how it's affecting people. Once in a while, somebody comes up to me after a message and says, oh, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I think, it did? <laughs> Um, hmm, what part of that? Because I felt like it was kind of a mediocre sermon, but for some reason it was exactly what somebody needed to hear. Well, it was something general, but they took it personally, correctly. I can't see their heart, so all I can do is keep on presenting all the general commands that God gives to all believers. And those that hear it and apply it to their own hearts are going to find out that God leads them according to his word. We want to keep on in mind here, we keep talking about God's word, there's two aspects of this. One 
is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and apart from him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not overpower it. And finally, as as somebody read this morning, and uh, actually it was Rick, read this morning in John 1.14, it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of truth, grace and truth. That's the living Word. But he's given us the written Word by which to learn to know the living Word. That's why we take it so seriously here. Jesus is the living word of God, and he never leads us contrary to the written word of God. And God says he's going to reveal it all in the end. He's going to reveal the intents of the heart. He, everybody's going to know whatever it is you're thinking today. Okay, good or bad. <clears throat> so all the way down through this, verse 6 we're going to see, he says, uh, These things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, plural, that you, ye in King James, is the plural you, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. So starting in chapter 1, he compared, you know, you guys are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, that's a different word for Peter, uh, I am of Christ. And he says this, is, this kind of bickering is counterproductive. It's what we call sectarianism. It's heresy. It's dividing the church. Not okay. So he keeps coming back to that subject, and he says, look, I'm using us as a picture. I've already told you we had similar ministries, but they weren't exactly the same. I planted, he watered, etc. But Paul says that he chose himself and Apollos as simple examples, comparing himself and his own ministry with that of Apollos, his conclusion all the way in these first four chapters has consistently been that neither of them was anything special. There's nothing special about me or anybody else. It's Jesus is the one doing the work. God's the one that gives the increase. I'm not holding myself up, and you better not either. In fact, their example says we are nothing special, and his point that he makes in the next verse, and neither are you. In verse 7, he says, Who makes thee to differ from another, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive. Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, or boast, as if thou had not received it? You see, the bottom line is if Apollos and I are nothing special, and we're not, then what makes you think that you're so special? I took my training with New Tribes Mission, and before I was in their uh, jungle camp training, the boot camp training, they used to call it, a friend of mine was there, and he told me how when they were up in the jungle camp, they had to prepare for up-and-coming classes. And one of the things in any kind of an outdoor place like that, you're going to have to have some outhouses. And we were miles out of any kind of, you know, city or anything. So every, all the men had to take turns digging in these pits. You'd have from this time to this time, the next guy would have from this time to this time, and so forth. But there was a fellow there that my friend Dan knew and he'd already made comments like, well, our working days are over, aren't they? <laughs> and he thought, boy, you're in the wrong place, man. <laughs> you're just starting on the work here. So later on, they were given the assignment of digging out these latrines, and he happened to walk by the hole while that 
other guy was in the hole. The other guy was a former pastor, and he could hear the guy talking. So I stepped in a little closer to think, what's going on down there? And he could hear the guy muttering over and over, this is no way to treat a pastor. This is no way to treat a pastor. Oh, see, he was something special. He shouldn't have to dig a little train. Shouldn't have to do menial work, minister's work. Huh. And Paul says, if, if Apollos and I are nothing special, what makes you think you're so special? There's a humbling thing here. He says three things in verse 7. One, what makes you different than anybody else? Two, what do you actually have? Look through your whole life. What do I have that wasn't somehow a gift? I mean, you know, I happen to remember a lot of things pretty easily. Some people don't. I consider that a gift. I, I don't work at it very hard. Uh, my daughter's a terrific artist. She works at it, but she was gifted to begin with. There were people in the classes with her who had been working and had it be since before she was born, and she passed them up in the first few weeks. Yeah, that's a gift, but she kept working at it, and she got really good. See, and there's other people that are musicians that, you know, people talk, let's see, was it Mozart that I think he wrote his first uh, full-on concert when he was six years old? Nobody had to tell him how to do it. It just came flowing out of him. And that means all the parts. What, let's see, concert, that's not the right word. Symphony, that was it. Or all the parts in the orchestra. He had them all written out. Somebody asked him, so, so how would I learn to write music like you? And he says, well, you could start with something simple like a sonata or something. And he says, well, you didn't do that. He says, yeah, but nobody had, I didn't have to ask anybody how to do it. See, he was that gifted. What do you have that you did not simply receive as a gift? And the third thing he asks, and if you only received it as a gift that you did nothing to earn, then why brag? Why get your head up in the clouds and think you're better than somebody else? you got no business doing that. We're all called to discipleship, and we're all called to service. We're all called to stewardship at various levels. We're all called to grow up by feeding on God's word, by obeying his word, and walking with him. That's how you do it. That's how you grow. And uh, I think it's First Peter 2, 2. He says, desire, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's where the sheep food is. Right there in God's word. That you may grow thereby. And he also tells us to focus our attention on him and his word. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 I am going to read that. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. <clears throat> he says, We also have, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. He's talking about the Bible. Whereunto you, plural, ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Until Jesus comes back from you for you, this is your source of light right here. And he says for you to focus your attention on it. He says take heed. That's where you need to be looking. Not just, you know, lollygagging around and looking at what the world's got to offer. You need to be looking at the light of God's word and the light of his countenance. We're to focus our attention on him. Now as a personal note, I'm speaking from my own perspective. Having received the gift and the assignment 
of teaching and feeding the flock, I no longer have the option to just go do something else. Not only, not only I don't have the option, but I don't feel like, well, I could just go do that. No, I can't. This is it. This is where God wants me. I can't go someplace else. I mean, I wish George was here this morning because he could sure relate to this. George and I both were commercial fishermen a long time ago. And I can't decide, you know, I think I'd just like to go back to commercial fishing. A, I couldn't handle it anymore. I get sick standing on the dock now. But B, that's exactly what Peter did in John chapter 21. He says, I go fishing. And all the other disciples followed his lead. They're going back to commercial fishing. They weren't just going out and wetting a hook for the fun of it. They're abandoning the task that Jesus had set for them and going back to commercial fishing. And Jesus met him that day and told Peter, you do not have that option. That was his fourth time, by the way, to be called away from the boat. Four times. Check it out. <clears throat> I can't choose to go off and be a hermit luthier. Some of you know I make violins. Well, you know, there's times I feel like, yeah, I could just sit in this little hole in the basement and, and be by myself and work on violins. I'd be perfectly happy. No, that's not one of the options. It's not one of the options. I have a stewardship. And I must be faithful. I have to be called faithful. I have to focus on the job I was sent to do. So take that out of, you know, what about Chad and just what about all of us? We're no longer our own masters. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. We're going to see that as we get further along in Corinthians. And we're called to follow the leadership and yield to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us is called as a disciple. He is our Savior. He's also our Master, and He's our final judge at every level. We need to keep that in mind. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd please teach us to respond to you as our true Master and as our great Shepherd. Teach us to feed upon your Word. Teach us to feed upon you as the living Word. Cause us to grow up into spiritual maturity and to embrace the responsibility of discipleship. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.